0: Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, those who are regular worshippers, those visitors, and those uh, who've come especially uh, for this occasion. I was sharing with someone, there's a famous story, I think it was the 19th century, uh, of a minister who outlived his stay in a church for 30 years or more. Finally, he announced he was to leave, and the church was so relieved they gave him a fantastic send-off And in his final speech, he stood up and said, I didn't know you loved me so much, I've decided to stay. (laughs) So no fear about that. I shall be doing other things, and you will see us around from time to time. But it's great to share together and, as always, to give thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's made it all possible. So let's just pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Gracious God, on this, the Lord's Day, we come together to hear what the Spirit is saying to us as a church today. We acknowledge again, it's not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So, take feeble human words and speak to us from your living word. And may we be those who hear and put into practice what you say to us, even this day. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. Amen. Thank you. Well, as Donald mentioned, I began my ministry and I preached my first sermon as Senior Pastor of Charlotte Chapel on August the 23rd, 1992. I am just interested to know if you were there on that occasion. Would you raise your hand if you were there? Wow, so many people have stayed the course. (laughs) It's amazing. Well, lovely to see you all here. When I came to Charlotte Chapel, as with any new pastor, you don't know a lot about the church that you're about to begin a ministry among. I knew, of course, of Charlotte Chapel by reputation, uh, but your problem when you start off is you don't have a lot of insight into what is most applicable to preach on to that particular congregation. In fact, my biggest problem now as a preacher is when I'm invited to go and preach in another church. I just don't know often what to say and uh, what's appropriate. And I say to the pastor, tell me about the church. What have you been preaching through? What are the relevant themes? So here I am, 17 years later, and to my horror and amazement, and um, they need to modify and remove a lot, uh, I looked on the chapel website, and there are 839 sermons uh, that I've preached during this period. So if you can't sleep, well. <laughs> uh, so today, 17 years later, 839 sermons later, I asked myself, Am I any clearer about Charlotte Chapel? Not about what you are like, but about what we are like. Because I've said it before, and I don't say it lightly, uh, every sermon I preach to you, I preach to myself. And I'm part of this congregation and in God's providence have been in some to some degree have shaped this congregation over the past 17 years. So I asked myself as I thought about this particular Sunday, what is the Spirit saying to us in Charlotte Chapel now all these years on in 2009? And as I thought and reflected on it, uh, for my answer, I returned to my first morning series in Charlotte Chapel not knowing exactly what the church was like those who put their hands up can tell you exactly what i preached on in those days no most of you can't remember last week but never mind um on that first series not knowing what the church was like i preached with god's help through the opening chapters of the book of revelation and the description of those seven churches in the roman province of asia and i did so and i said to charlotte chapel Let's just look at these seven churches, which are a kind of snapshot of different kinds of churches, and ask ourselves, which of these are we like, and which of these are we most like? And so today, as my senior pastor, I return to that theme, and to one of the churches which, which I think, not perfectly, but in many ways, reflects what we are as Charlotte Chapel today, and what I am. And so I want to turn to the first of those churches. And I choose it. Uh, You don't need to turn to your Bibles yet. It'll come up in a minute, as my usual long introductions do. Um, And I choose it. It's a church in Ephesus, not just because like Edinburgh, it begins with the same letter E. Uh, The letter is addressed to the church in Ephesus. And uh, I was interested that uh, uh, Tom Lawson... of our pastoral team preached on these verses about a month ago to the evening congregation and i thought maybe maybe i need to do something different then i thought no what the lord is saying to us we need to reinforce and i encourage you to download as i did and listen to tom's excellent sermon on that theme so before we actually turn to the letter a few introductory remarks about the city in question ephesus and the church in that city because not to make too great a point, of it, you will see some interesting comparisons between Edinburgh and Charlotte Chapel, and I won't labor them, you can work them out for yourself. Uh, First of all, Ephesus was a leading city in the ancient world. Uh, Technically, Pergamon was the capital city of the province of Asia, but Ephesus was the largest and most important, so they claimed they had a slogan, Ephesus, the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. You can draw your own comparisons with Edinburgh and another city in Scotland. Um, Edinburgh, was going to say, Ephesus was a major seaport. It was a center of trade for the Mediterranean world. Beyond it, to the east, it had a cosmopolitan population of 250,000 people with a very high standard of living and amenities. It enjoyed the privileges of being a free city in the Roman Empire and a sized town. It was a seat of government. It was an important city, like our own city of Edinburgh. Some years ago, Uh, A a few of you went with Nitra and I uh, and we went to visit these the sites of the seven churches now in Turkey and if you've never been if you ever get the chance go and look at Ephesus it's one of the greatest archaeological sites in the world and only 10 to 15 percent has been excavated so far but even so it's an amazing uh, place to visit you can see uh, some pictures coming up the magnificent library of Celsus. Uh, The the amphitheater that features in the book of Acts. Uh, There are numerous temples that have been excavated and statues to numerous gods. And of course the greatest god of Ephesus was Artemis or in Latin Diana of the Ephesians. Uh, All that remains of her temple is just one pillar that's been uh, discovered and erected. Uh, But various attempts have been made to reconstruct what the temple actually looked like. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Many people believe it was the greatest of all. However, and again there are comparisons with Edinburgh, it was not all good or positive. There was an underbelly to life in Ephesus. Religion and license, occult and magic, were inextricably linked, and the temple sanctuary provided a place where criminals of any kind could go for relief. And it became a center of occult, of criminal gangs and activity. Uh, it was a source of great concern to the Roman Empire down through the years. And this was a city that you would think uh, had, was unpromising soil for the seed of the gospel, especially a faith based on a Jew who had been crucified by the Romans 25 years late, 25 years ago, as a man named Paul and his companions slipped through the city gates and walk down the main thoroughfare into the city, which you can still see. And as I walked down it myself, I've been twice now, you can imagine Paul and his companions walking into this great city down the streets. Yet amazingly, in this seemingly unfertile soil, and you can read the account in the book of Acts, the message of the gospel, as they called it, the good news of Jesus, did take root. It challenged the cult of Artemis the livelihood of her image makers, and eventually provoked a riot in the amphitheater. Paul left town, but he left behind a church in Ephesus, which became a leading church. As we've seen, its founder was Paul. If you've been with us in our series in uh, 1 Timothy, Timothy was its first pastor, left by Paul to look after this church there. It had Great and gifted teachers among its membership, the the wife and husband team of Priscilla and Aquila, a brilliant Alexandrian Jew named Apollos, and Paul made it his basis for his evangelistic endeavors, and several of the letters in the New Testament are written from Ephesus. By around 66 AD, Timothy was killed in a riot in the city, the church also had its own resident apostle, the apostle John, who lived there, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, this is all outside of the Bible, but in historical documents. Until John the Apostle was banished to the prison island of Patmos some 25 years later, around 90 AD. And so it's perhaps significant that the first of the seven letters, the messages that John receives on the Lord's Day, recorded in the book of Revelation, is addressed to his home church. I'm sure that he waited with a mixture of anticipation an apprehension to hear what the Risen Lord saw in his church at Ephesus as he walked among the lampstands. What he heard was a reminder to him and to the church in Ephesus, and I would suggest to you today, a reminder to us in Charlotte Chapel. No matter what our history, what our reputation, we cannot live in the past or rely on present past glories for present, or future, a blessing. And the challenge to the church in Ephesus, which I leave with you today, as I have left with myself, can be summarized in the words at the heart of the letter, first love forsaken. So read with me Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. It's page 1, 2, 3, 4 in the Pew Bibles. Revelation 2, just seven verses. To the angel or messenger of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen, Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's Word. Three simple things to say about this message to the church in Ephesus and perhaps to us today in Charlotte Chapel. First of all, commendation. The Lord has something serious to say to this church. Unlike us and unlike me, when we tend to jump in straight away with a criticism, He begins instead, first of all, with commendation, which is framed... Which frames the criticism in verses 2 and 3 and 6. Look again. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, found them to be false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And then, verse 6, yet you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We can summarize the Lord's commendation of this church under two headings. First of all, he commends them for their determination in the face of hardship. The Ephesian Christians were hard workers. The Lord commends them for this. The words used here are those of an ordinary manual laborer, sweat-inducing work. They were not the types who put in with a burst of enthusiasm and then gave up when the going got hard. No, they were those who showed perseverance and endurance. I'm really sorry, I forgot to bring, this week we had, kind of wonderful in this particular week, uh, I got a, a package in the post, a book, and when I opened it, it was the New Testament, first edition, ever, In a language in Nigeria, which Nita and I wrote the alphabet for and laid the foundations for before we had to leave because of it Nita's ill health and come into ministry in the UK. And it was kind of lovely just to get this. And he said, Thank you for the foundations that you laid, but I thank God for Richard and Janice Gardner for 20 years. Stuck with it to give the Afizere people the Word of God in their own language in Nigeria. That's the kind of determination that we need. And the Ephesian Christians were like that. They stuck with it. And the context in which they exhibited such determination was one of fierce persecution from imperial Rome. There was the terrible persecution under the emperor Domitian, and locally from civil and religious authorities, Jews and Gentiles. The church in Ephesus was born in a riot and lived through the fires of suffering. Yet in spite of this, the Christians there kept going and kept... Kept working. Now, if you've read the history of Charlotte Chapel, we should be thankful for those over 200 years who have just kept going and kept the light of the gospel burning in this local church. We should not take that for granted. Many of them are not named in the book. Couldn't put all the names here, but their names are written in heaven. Their deeds are known to God. For many of you, I know, many of you have faithfully served the Lord in this church year after year, year after year, and every year we as a church, and and AG, and we give thanks for those who have now gone to be with the Lord, and our last church meeting was a typical one, I think we had 15 members who had been, as the Salvation Army called it, promoted to glory in the past year. On an average, they had spent 45 years in membership in Charlotte Chapel. That is amazing. You won't see that in the future, partly because we're more mobile, but partly because... Sometimes for good reasons, we tend to move from church to church. We don't stick with one. But whatever it is, whatever church we belong to, we need to be those who persevere and keep going. Far too many Christians have a favorite hymn and sing just the first line, Jesus, I am resting, 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 resting. How easy it is to become discouraged when things get tough. But that was not the case with the Christians in Ephesus. The risen Lord commends them and commends... All of them, like them, who keep on going in the face of hardship. But that's not all. A second thing they're commended for in these verses is discrimination in the face of heresy. If you know the Bible, you know that when Paul made his farewell to the Christians in Ephesus, he knelt on the beach there Miletus, and he prayed with them, and before he left, he warned the church in Ephesus, the elders, he said, when I leave, you need to be on your guard, because savage wolves will come in, even from among your own membership, and will destroy the flock, so watch out. And it appears that the church in Ephesus and the leaders took his words to heart. They remained on guard. Wolves came in. False teachers among the scattered flocks of the churches in the Mediterranean world. Their false teaching ranged across the spectrum from legalism, from those from a Jewish background who wanted to impose the law of Moses on Gentile believers, to license from those from a Greek background who sought to turn Christian liberty into an excuse for sexual indulgence and other excesses. They're described in these seven letters variously as Nicolaitans, those who hold to the teaching of Balaam, those who follow Jezebel. We're not sure of the exact details of each group or whether they're the same group. What is important is that these Christians in Ephesus were not taken in. Verse 2, they tested those who claimed to be apostles but are not, And have found them to be false now we need to be thankful as a church in charlotte chapel that with god's help we've remained true to the foundations of the christian gospel and faith over the years there is a shift i believe uh, in this present generation which moves away from truth and doctrine as being dry and barren and some of us grew up with a dead doctrinalism but that's no excuse for throwing out the baby with the bathwater. When I first began preaching, for maybe forty-seven years ago, I think it was, I'm a lot older than I look. For those who think about this, but when I first began preaching all those years ago, uh, quite often, usually kindly, sometimes not, uh, senior brothers would speak to me at the door and put me right on certain things, or. If there was communion following and an open time of sharing, they would use the opportunity then. As our young brother said, Lord, I was thinking of, yes, something else. It is very rare now that anyone ever tackles me at the door. Today we'll probably be an exception. But. The church at Ephesus was praised by the risen Lord for its intolerance of wicked men. This is no academic matter, for the life and future of the church of Jesus Christ is at stake here. A man whose wife is being seduced by a plausible philanderer does not stand around in polite conversation with him. Such is the Lord's jealousy for his bride and his commendation of those who protect her integrity and purity. And I believe by God's grace we've remained faithful to that. This church was born, reborn a century ago, as you'll know, in the fires of revival. The Welsh revival touched Charlotte Chapel through Joseph Kemp. And a church was born out of that. I'm sad to say that nearly all the churches, most of the large churches in Wales where that revival occurred are now empty shells or a handful of people. But the church here has maintained that witness with a full church over a century. Because people have not only sought to maintain the fire of the gospel, but along with it, the truth of the gospel. The lampstand has remained and the light still shines. However, now we come to the point... Determination in the face of hardship, discrimination in the face of heresy, are not enough to ensure the survival of a church. For now, the letter turns from commendation to condemnation in verse 4. On the surface, it seems such a small thing when weighed against all that was good in the church in Ephesus. The praise lavished on Ephesus is more than any of the other six churches. If you were to give marks out of ten, you'd probably give them eight or nine. But that is to look at things from a human perspective. The Lord's diagnosis, what He says, I know, is that this one failing outweighs all the rest and is of the most acute seriousness. Why? Because this one thing will kill a church unless it is rectified. So what is this one thing? this terrible thing, this malaise within the ranks of this hard-working, persevering, orthodox church at Ephesus. Verse 4, yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Outwardly, all seem well. I like to ask people who know the New Testament, knowing the New Testament and the churches described there, if you could have joined one in the first century, which church would you have joined? most of us would have joined either Laodicea or Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that was highly impressive. Lots of activities, sound Bible teaching. A model church in all appearances save one. The Lord with His piercing eyes looks into the heart of the church and its members and sees that they have lost their first love. You see, love had been a characteristic of the church at Ephesus since its inception the letter to the Ephesians is a letter of love the word is mentioned 23 times in six letters the Apostle John who was resident there was above all else known as the Apostle of love his three little letters in the New Testament contain the word love over 40 times but when John gets this message the church in Ephesus is 40 years old middle-aged many second-generation Christians Life may begin at 40, but love can die at 40. So, what remains when love dies in a church? Activity and orthodoxy. And these things are usually the characteristic of post first generation churches and Christians. Leon Morris comments they had yielded to the temptation ever present in Christians to put all their emphasis on sound teaching. In the process they lost love without which all else is nothing so I ask you as a church as I ask myself have we forsaken our first love do we love the Lord as much as we once did or has our love my love for the Lord grown cold and has as is always the case have other loves taken its place the place that only the Lord Jesus Christ should occupy in our lives. We sing an awful lot today, and I love the songs. You'll know that. I'm a fan of modern songs and old ones too. But we can sing these songs about loving the Lord and be lost in wonder, love, and praise. We can sing the greatest thing in all my life is knowing you and loving you. Or when I was growing up, we used to sing every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Every day with Jesus, I love him more and more. I find it hard to sing that in sincerity. Is that true? You see, it may be enough for a church, and it may be enough for most people, that a church is orthodox and hardworking, but it is never enough for the Lord. For it communicates the wrong message to the watching world in which that church is placed. And as we'll see, the Lord would sooner close it down than leave it like that. It's surely significant that only the first and last of these seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Ephesus and Laodicea, are threatened with closure by the risen Lord. In both, both cases, it is the loss of burning love for the Lord and a zealous passion for the Lord, which is the reason. Now, if this is of such vital importance to the Lord, I would suggest to you, in fact, I would say strongly to you, it should be of vital importance to us. Yet so often we are more concerned about doctrinal orthodoxy and regular attendance at church and involvement in church activities than our love for the Lord. Oh, we may say, well, he doesn't seem as keen as he was. And she's not as enthusiastic as she was, but they're still coming to Charlotte Chapel every Sunday, so let's settle for that. It's perhaps inevitable that love is the first thing to be lost and love is the hardest thing to maintain. How easy it is to lose our first love to forsake the one who loved us and who loves us thankfully the Lord's love for us is the same as ever and that is why he challenges us whom I love I also chasten says the Lord that's why today he comes to us and says as he said to the apostle Peter all those years ago by the lake of Galilee after his resurrection do you truly love me Peter and the Lord is not just like a doctor who offers an accurate diagnosis I was amused recently our family were amused I went to see my doctor we have a new health practice where we live now and it's one of these ones like an airport terminal you get your voiceover, and you get a different doctor every time and I went in the doctor's surgery Nita said you need to go to the doctor you're putting on too much weight and uh, you 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 need to get Proper diet sorted out and more exercise, and so I went in and the, the doctor there, really nice guy, and uh, he's about my age. and I said, look, doctor, yeah, I'm I was just thinking, you know, I'm putting on weight a bit, and maybe. And he looked at me and he patted his stomach and he said, I know just what you feel. I'm just the same. And <laughs> uh, Nita came out and said, what did he give you a diet? I said no, but he was very sympathetic. Now, in all seriousness, the Lord is the great physician. He not only knows what we need, but he provides a remedy. So notice thirdly and finally, my last three-point sermon that alliterates, which Donald loves. Um, my third point is correction, verse, verse 5. Notice the remedy is in three parts, which for ease of memory also begin with the same letter. First of all, he says, remember. He urges them to think back to what they once were, to look up and see how far they have fallen. Remember the height from which you have fallen. And as I ask you, do you still live the Lord the same? Is it not true that our minds go back and we think about the past? Did we, how did we live the Lord then? Have we fallen? Have we drifted? One of my favorite illustrations, which is probably on several of those 839 sermons, but I'll repeat it again, was when I was a child. I remember on holiday we went to a beach and it was a lovely sunny day and uh, we we had one of those inflatable lilos, you know, that you have to blow up... you can get pumps from there, but you blow them up and you're so exhausted that you lay on them for the rest of the day, you know. And uh, we got this lilo and put it on the water and I lay on it and I put my, my face up to the sun and I just loved it, you know, and just lay there enjoying this lilo, drifting on the waves like this. Suddenly I heard this sound from the beach. Peter! And I thought, what was that? Somebody's a long way away. And I looked up to my horror. I drifted away, a long way from the beach, and my parents were frantically shouting for me to return. And I was able to I'm still here of course, so I was able to <laughs> <laughs> paddle back to land. You see, the reality is, my experience over the years, and I can say on a Sunday like this, it's lovely to see you all here, the people I remember are those who've drifted away. It's the Pastor. They're the ones that hurt. Because you know your own heart, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God. Few of us, in my experience, are swept away from the moorings of our faith by a tidal wave. Most of us drift away gradually, imperceptibly, bit by bit. And how frightening it can be, therefore, when the Holy Spirit wakens us up maybe in Charlotte Chapel today on August the 23rd, 2009. And we realize with horror how far we have drifted away from our first love for the Lord. And we say, if you'd ever told me I would be like this when I first became a Christian, I would never have believed it. Yet I would suggest to you that awakening and memory are essential steps on the road to recovery. Think of the prodigal son who went off to that far country. He never gave his home a thought as he spent his money in wine and women and song until eventually he reached a pigsty and the scriptures say in Luke 15, 17, when he came to his senses, he said, I remember how many of my father's hired hands have food enough to spare, and here am I, starving to death in the pigsty, feeding on pig swell. Maybe some of us this morning, to outward appearances all is well, but you're really in the pigsty, eating pig swell, when you could be enjoying what the king has to offer, which you once enjoyed when you walked closely with him in fellowship with his people. And maybe the Lord has reminded us today of what we once were, how far we have fallen. It may not be apparent to anyone else, We still seem active Christians, ardent defenders of the faith. But like the hymn writer William Cooper, we ask ourselves the question, Where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? And such remembering should be a continuous exercise, an ongoing review. The tense of the verb is keep on remembering. And there is a second step. When you start remembering, the second step is the word repent. And the verb here is a different tense. It describes a sharp and decisive act. It means to agree with God's diagnosis of your condition, to admit your fault without qualification. And the words of repentance are always the same, be they David in the Old Testament after committing adultery and murder, to the prodigal in the New Testament, I have sinned against the Lord. Repentance is a change of mind, which leads to a change of direction towards God. It is not just saying the words, it is putting them into action. The prodigal son said, I will arise and go to my father. And the most significant words follow. So he arose and went. That's repentance. It is not repentance saying, I've sinned against my father. Repentance is getting up, turning around, going back home. And when we do, the amazing thing is, maybe you're feeling pretty bad this morning. God's Word, we often pray in the vestry, Lord, comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Well, maybe you're disturbed this morning. But here's wonderful news, good news. When prodigals return home, we find the Father standing with his arms wide open, running down the road to welcome us home. What a place, Charlotte Chapel today, the Lord's Table. How wonderful, the elders said, preach your last sermon and we'll share around the Lord's Table. Wonderful. And he greets our repentance with joy and forgiveness and restoration. Let's have a feast. Let's celebrate. We celebrate the Lord's death until he comes. Because we need to keep remembering. We need to keep repenting. You'll save when you repent and put your faith in Christ. It's a continual exercise for the Christian. When did you last genuinely Repent remember repent and thirdly another R, repeat remember the height from which you fall and repent and do the things you did at first what were the things you did at first when you first repented and responded to god's grace january the 14th 1961 i came to know the lord so what happened after that well you lived to spend time with the lord in prayer you love to read his word and listen to his voice you love to be with God's people you love to serve the Lord but the key thing these are the fruits of repentance but the key word is you did them because you loved you didn't do them out of duty what we need above all else is a fresh love for the Lord Jesus Christ now this is such a vital issue we nearly come to a conclusion but you'll know when I preach that means probably ten more minutes but stay with me um, such a vital issue that Lord Jesus Christ gives a final warning to the church at Ephesus. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I will remove the lamp of witness from your church. The warning is imminent, literally in the original, I am coming. Here's the sad fact. The warning was not heeded. The lampstand was removed from Ephesus. Church and city are buried literally in the sands of time. The songs of praise are silent. The light of witness has long been extinguished. All that remains is an archaeological site that tourists wander around and say, wow, that was a fantastic place, wasn't it? And I simply say to you again, we cannot presume on God's blessing on our churches and Charlotte chapel. Many church buildings are now derelict or taken over by commercialism, even other religions. And I know you say, this is Charlotte Chapel, it will never happen here. It happened within a generation when we lose our first love. We are not exempt. However, thankfully, this letter to the church in Ephesus and my message to you ends not with a final warning, but with a final promise in verse 7. To those who hear and respond, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are you listening? Are you listening? What the Spirit is saying to us today. If so, we are given an amazing promise. Here's the final promise. You need to know some background. You remember in Genesis when Adam fell and took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He was banished from paradise. Genesis 3.22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So Adam sinned, and Adam died. Now notice the promise here, the last promise. What Adam lost has now been restored. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. You see it? What Adam lost, eternal life, is now promised to those who overcome. The word used there in verse 7 for tree is a very interesting word. It's a very unusual word. And it's used in the New Testament to describe the cross of Jesus by which he became a curse so that we might enjoy the blessing of eternal fellowship with God. What Adam lost has now been restored through the cross of Christ. Here's Paul writing to the Galatians. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs, same word, on a tree. Nothing would delight me more today in Charlotte Chapel. Love the singing. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your prayers, everything else. Nothing would delight me more than that someone came to the Lord today. That Someone came back to the Lord. So as I've always sought to do, I leave you with the gospel. The wages of sin is death that's Adam but second Adam the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so today let us heed the warning hear what the Spirit is saying to us as we come to the Lord's table and appropriately we're going to focus on the cross of Jesus Let's use this as an opportunity for remembering, for repentance, and for wonder, love, and praise as we focus on him, to whom be all the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. I'm going to sing a great hymn that I chose and Donald agreed to, as he has done for 17 years. (laughs) Donald, do you want to lead this? yeah, we're going to sing a great modern hymn. I think will become one of the great modern hymns. Oh to see the dawn This the power of the cross Christ became sin for us Took the blame bore the pain we stand forgiven At the cross you will need to stand to sing this the elders will come and join me share around the Lord's table If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, we encourage you to join with us in fellowship with his people if you if you I'm not sure about it, just let the bread and wine pass you by. Maybe today for the first time you want to come in repentance. I'll give you an opportunity before we take the bread and wine. But let's stand together and sing, shall we?